All right. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're in Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 17 this morning. And if you're here uh, visiting today, we've been uh, in a sermon series on the Apostle Paul who wrote letters to churches, and he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, and he was uh, dealing with false teaching that was coming their way. Um, and so he said, hey, guys, this is who Jesus is, and uh, this, is what, this is who he is, so don't mistake who he is. And secondly, this is what he thinks of you, that you're holy, you're chosen, uh, you're righteous in his sight. And, th- and then near the end of the book, he said, therefore, this is how you're to live especially in your closest relationships in the household. And so this morning we're looking at household expectations. And uh, there were two uh, lines of thinking in the Christian church today, even among Bible-believing churches when it comes to marriage relationships. Um, The first is complementarian and the other is egalitarian. Complementarian says that Husbands and wives, they, of course, complement each other, but the man is the head of the household, the husband. And it, it leads over into the church when it says men are to be the pastors and they're to be the leaders of the church and on the leadership team. And so some churches that believe that would be like the Southern Baptist Church and the Evangelical Free Church, the Presbyterian Church of America, Reformed Presbyterian Evangelical Mennonite, Mennonite Brethren, Lutheran Missouri Synod, CMA, etc. And then there are egalitarian churches that, that say that husbands and wives share leadership in the household according to their gifts, and women can be leaders in churches too, in Christ As new creations, they can share in the leadership. And so we in the church, this covenant church, we believe that's the case biblically. It's not a liberal issue. We say it's a biblical issue. It's a kingdom of God issue uh, where women in Christ are are free to lead as well. And so we have leaders on our leadership team. And occasionally you'll see women uh, preach here and they lead in prayer and they lead in many different ways, always that where they're gifted. And churches that adhere to that would be like the Covenant Church, the Free Methodist Church, the Salvation Army Church, the Foursquare Church, the Assembly of God Churches, the Wesleyan Church, the Nazarene Churches, the American Baptist Churches, the Evangelical Presbyterian Churches, the Christian Reformed Churches, the Vineyards, a host of others. And so you can see even in the Bible-believing churches who, who say this is God's word, inspired, authentic word, authoritative word, There is a difference in thought. Um, And you can have your freedom to believe what you desire for your household or for your future household if you're not married yet. And you can still remain here and be fully accepted with your viewpoint. Whether I'm going to be the head of the household as the man or whether we'll share leadership, for example. But our church and denomination believes that women can be leaders. Christ rose again to set women free. And so I'm going to share with you why uh, I believe that clearly from Scripture. And again, you can disagree with this, but uh, you need to know the church where you are worshiping what what we believe. So every household uh, shares its joys and its sorrows, its celebrations and dysfunctions. And so Paul uh, wrote to this new church in Colossae about the expectations for what it looks like to live for Christ in a drastically different culture than we live in, the Greco-Roman world. And, and you'll see that it differs vastly from our world today in many respects. And so he writes household expectations for those 
who want to live for the glory of God in verse 17. Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all for the glory of God, giving thanks to God. Verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the first category. Second category, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And parents, do not embitter your children, for they will become discouraged. That's the second category. Third category, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And masters, provide your slaves with what, for what, it, what is right and fair. So there are expectations for both sets. All three, all three uh, examples, there were, uh, there were ex- expectations. And today, as we read and hear these passages, we may conclude, now, not we, but people who aren't believers may conclude, now I know your Bible's outdated. I mean, what women, wives submitting to husbands? Come on. Uh, slaves obeying masters? Now I know your Bible's outdated and it's chauvinistic and it's offensive, they'll say. And and many believe that Paul the Apostle was chauvinistic and anti-Christian. But anything can be further from the truth when you understand all of Scripture and where they were coming from. I think we'll be surprised uh, at how freeing our God is and how loving our God is when we understand the context for which Paul wrote, women, submit your husbands. Well, what is submission? Let's look at what it isn't, first of all. Submission doesn't mean contradicting God's word. For example, women, you must be a doormat. You must tolerate your husband no matter how unfair he is, which may result in domestic abuse and um, harm. And Paul doesn't mean, that's not submission at all. Um, Secondly, it doesn't mean that all women must submit to all men. The context is husbands and wives, but many carry it to the extreme. For example, what if your boss is a woman? I've worked under three women who are my bosses. They were all fair. They were all godly. They were all humble and visionary and truly leadership examples for me. And I learned under all three of them. Um, Paul's instruction of submission here is to wives and husbands. And again, it won't be so offensive once you understand the context. Um, But it seems offensive. In the Greco-Roman world, here's Paul's context. All women were considered to be inferior to men during those days. They were created inferior, men are superior. Uh, The hierarchical attitude infiltrated into the thinking of the Greco-Roman world and even in the Jewish mindset. And so William Barclay, in his classic commentary, he wrote, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband, not just uh, as much, I'm sorry, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal rights whatsoever. It was worse in the Greek society. In Greek, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the marketplace. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. 
From her there were demanded a, co- a complete servit- uh, servitude and chastity. And her husband could, not, could go out as much as he chose. He could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. But under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties belong to the wife. So this is the culture in which Paul is writing to these churches. Thankfully today in America and the West, we don't see that extreme attitude. Um, But we do see it in other cultures and other countries where women have little to no rights whatsoever. They're in bondage to men over them. And we see that, especially in Middle Eastern countries, some of them. Well, Paul's instruction would have given women an immense amount of freedom when they heard these words, believe it or not. Because in their freedom, they had the choice now to willingly submit to their husbands, those who respected them and loved them in Christ, and they were not forced by the culture to this, um, this unfair submission and forced submission as the world dictated. So the Apostle Paul would have understood also that God's original intention, and this is where the covenant is, God's original intention went back to the Garden of Eden pre-fall where God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them Male and female, he created them. So male and females were created in the image of God. Adam and Eve's job description was seen in the next verse. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then he he gave them this command, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So from the very beginning, Adam and Eve were to share in this co-rulership over God's creation. They were together to rule as equals over God's creation. They, the two of them formed a one, a whole. But as you know, in the next chapter, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They chose to branch off on their own. And as a result, they experienced consequences And the consequence for the woman, for Eve, was this. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And with painful labor, you will give birth to children. And here it is. Your desire will be for your husband. In the NLT, it's explained. And you will desire to control your husband. And the husband, well, he will rule over you. That's a result of the fall of sinfulness, not God's original intention. This desire to control and this propensity to want to rule over another is a result of the fall which led to blaming one another and shaming one another and self-centeredness and ego and accusation and disrespect and unfaithfulness, on and on. Result of the fall. You know, when I counsel newlyweds, they want to, uh, they have these Wide eyes of, oh man, this is going to be a walk in the park. But then after a couple months, they know, they discover it's Jurassic Park, you know. <laughs> or, or, or this next carte- cartoon um, where uh, the man says, she's doing all the driving, I'm just the one behind the wheel. You know, so you get this, all of a sudden you have these gender wars. 
that pop up. Women's liberation and, uh, you know, all this stuff. And, and men trying to control that as a result of the fall. But God did not abandon us humans in our sinfulness. Right after the fall, he planned a way to redeem and restore that which was lost in the garden. And so he sent his son Jesus to come and live for us and die for us on the cross and rise again to give his life to us so that now in Christ... There's no longer this hierarchical thing. There's no Jew over Gentile. There's no longer slave or master over slave. There's no longer male over female. In Christ, we are one. Some say, well, that just pertains to salvation. I say salvation pertains to all of life. Again, that's what we believe in, in, the, um, in the covenant because we believe it's biblical. It's a kingdom issue. Um, where God wants to restore what was lost in the garden, where man and woman, they, they co-reign together as co-equals. So that, uh, but still, isn't this rule of submission, this language of submission that a uh, wife should submit to her husband, isn't that barbaric? Is that not an abuse of power, even the language? If you read the counterpart in Ephesians, you know, the very same language to a church, in Ephesus, Paul writes the same things, but right before it, the heading is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the overarching principle in Scripture. Serve one another, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives examples what how it plays out. So both parties have equal high responsibility to convey the love of Christ to one another. Unlike in the pagan culture which we read about, where men was, you know, superior to women type of thing. And these household responsibilities are found in rep, rep, reciprocity. They're reciprocal, where he, he links wives. This is not just for wives, but it's equally for husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. And he goes on, it's not just for children, but parents, you have a responsibility too. And it's not just for slaves or servants, but it's for masters. You each have equal responsibility to be Christ-like to one another in Christ. So in verse 19, where it says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Um, Douglas Moo, in his commentary, writes, Requiring wives to submit to their husbands would not have sounded controversial in the Greco-Roman world. It was an expectation. Everybody understood that women were subservient to men. But requiring husbands to love their wives would have been much more radical command. It was not a part of their ethical system. In fact, no ethical code so far discovered from the ancient world requires husbands to love their wives in this way except for in the Bible. And as Lynn preached last week, um, the word agape love was unheard of in all the world religions. It was introduced by the life of Jesus Christ, this self-sacrificial love for the other, this other-centered love. So what does this radical command to men, husbands, look like in a marriage? Well, it looks like Jesus in Philippians 2. Though he was God, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant as a human, and he went as far as to die on the cross like a criminal for those he loved. 
He also demonstrated it by washing the feet of his disciples. He stooped to the lowest position known to uh, occupation in those days. He took on the role of a household servant and he washed his disciples' feet to their amazement. And then he commanded them to convey love to each other like that. That's what it looks like to follow me, Jesus said. Luke 22, he said, You want to be a leader, disciples? Then here, those who want to be the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. We husbands will say, Yeah, I'm willing to die for my wife, but we're not willing to do the dishes for her or do the wash, or change the diapers of, of our kids or grandkids. Or, or like this cartoon up here, the man says, when I die, I'm going to leave everything to you. The wife says, you already do that. <laughs> That's not the Christ-like attitude that we're called to, men. Husbands, if you truly want to lead well, then practice the words of Jesus. It's pretty simple. Take on the lowest form of a servant and serve your wife. Now, my wife and I, we practice mutual submission and mutual leadership in the household. We are one. Um, my wife is a leader in some ways that I'm not, and vice versa. We have strengths and weaknesses, right? Lynn practices her servant leadership by making the meals, and I sometimes make her toast. Uh, uh, but I do the dishes after the meals, and I serve that way. Um, she, uh, I practice servant leadership by making all those calls that no one wants to make to insurance companies and to phone companies and things like this. And I balance, uh, and, and I, what else do I do? Not much else, no. I, um, I balance the checkbook. And Lynn, Lynn, though, she loves to pay the bills. I don't know if she loves it, but she does. And she loves to plan our activities and the family schedule because she's really organized. Um, I like to practice mercy to people. Uh, she likes to practice hospitality, open up the house. So we just have our differences, which, which it plays out in leadership in the areas of our strength. It doesn't take Einstein to understand this. Uh, she's a leader in ways that I'm not and vice versa. Um, but when disagreements happen in your marriage and uh and you come to an impasse then someone's got to be the leader i'm thinking that never happened in our lives we disagree all the time but through conversation and prayer and through compromise and through consensus we work it out we listen to the lord like when we we're going to move to kansas 15 years ago or when we had the opportunity to move here to mcpherson um at first lynn thought had her heart set on moving to Minnesota, being closer to family members. And so it would have been dying to self. And so through the night she prayed, and the Lord confirmed in many specific ways that, hey, be open to this, and gave Lynn an immense amount of peace. And so as we came together a day later, we were both very excited uh, for this possibility to move here. That's how the Lord works. He does this. He speaks to us together as one. And... Uh, and we submit to each other sometimes, and we lead sometimes. Again, the more revolutionary command would have been to the men, the husbands in the Greco-Roman world. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and, and do not be harsh with them. This word harsh means don't use your physical strength to throw your weight around. 
Uh, don't be abusive like this. Don't be sharp. Don't be pointed. Don't be cross. Uh, don't become ir- easily irritated. And so that's how men are instructed to be with their wives, which would have been so countercultural to the days that they lived in. This woman married a, a man, and they were happily married for a couple weeks, and then she realized just how controlling and manipulative her new husband was. In fact, he would take a piece of paper, and he, he'd jot down like 14, 15 different uh, instructions for her, you know, chores for her to get done by the time he came home from work. And so she, in fear and trepidation, would do all of these chores, uh, and she'd do them well because she didn't want to incur the wrath of her husband when he returned. And for years, she lived like this. And then one day, the husband unexpectedly died. And then eventually, the woman married again and found another man that she loved. And this, this man, though, he had a servant heart. He had, he had a compassionate heart, a gentle heart toward her. And it was night and day different from her first husband. And one day when she was coming home, she opened a book and out fell this, a piece of paper from her former husband and she read through the rules and her stomach started churning and her heart started beating and then as she read through each one of these chores she realized I'm doing all these things for my husband but not out of fear and compulsion but out of love because I respect him and he loves me that's what submission looks like be willing to serve the person that God put you together with for a lifetime And when men love their wives and women submit to their husbands, they will both resemble Jesus, almost in the same way. Colossians 3.12, a few verses earlier, this is what men and women are to look like. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and peace and thanksgiving. That's what men and women are to look like, like Jesus. Um, Ephesians 5, again, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the overarching principle in Scripture. Serve one another, love one another, wash one another's feet. So you may be wondering, why did Paul use different terms then for wives to submit and for husbands to love and for wives later on to respect their husbands. And for, because men and women are wired differently. Um, according to books like His Brain and Her Brain by the Laramores or Love and Respect by Dr. Edgerich, uh, Paul uses these terms to appeal to the felt needs of both genders. Uh, a man's greatest need in general is to be respected. Ooh. We're going to be respected, you know? And, and a woman's general felt need is to be loved and cherished in general. But of course, we both need both, right? Like this cartoon who didn't quite get it right in the next slide. says, I was a fool when I married you. I know, dear, I was in love and I didn't notice. You know, that is not respect. That is not respect. So I would advise you against that. Um, But um, the differences are love and respect. There's a book called Love and Respect by Dr. Edrich, Emerson Edrich, and it it says this, men's greatest need is to be respected and women's is to be loved, but sometimes you get in this love and respect crazy cycle where if I don't feel loved, I'm not going to respect him. 
If she doesn't respect me and if she nags me, then I'm not going to love her. And you get caught in this cycle. And someone's got to get off this crazy cycle and end it and say, I'm going to be Christ-like. And I'm going to love and respect as God uh, wants me to. And so we can break that cycle. Um, without love, she'll react. And, but his love, on the other hand, will motivate her to respect him. And when he feels respected, he'll be motivated to love her. But, of course... Women, you want to be respected, and men, you want to be loved. And so these are gender-exclusive things, but in general, that's how we're wired. And that's why I believe Paul uses the different language to convey the same truth to men and women. Okay, so that's men and women, and that's why we are egalitarian here. And again, you may disagree with this. You may say, that's not how we're going to run our household. I say, God bless you then. You run it the way God wants you to, and, and I'm not going to try and change you. But you need to know why we believe what we believe. And secondly, uh, and this is really quick, instructions to parents and children real fast. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Again, this command does not mean tolerating child abuse or, or theft or parents saying, hey, would you lie for me on the phone or would you steal or whatever. Um, as a teenager, my... A lot of my friends rebelled against their parents who were really heavy-handed, you know, and, and they um, were either uh, very legalistic or they were very permissive. And so, so a lot of my friends rebelled, even Christian church friends rebelled, but I didn't because my parents trusted me and they gave me a fair amount of freedom even though they loved me. And so I didn't want to disappoint my parents. I said, man, I don't want to hurt my parents. So I walked the straight and narrow as a kid, you know, and I was happy for it. Uh, children need to learn to obey parents, and if they don't, then they'll have issues with respecting other authority figures, such as police or teachers or employers in the future. And there's a benefit for obeying parents, kids. In Deuteronomy, honor your father and mother so that you may live a long life and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. There's a blessing for being obedient to Scripture. But as radical as this command may sound um, to women, it's even much more radical about children in Paul's day because children had absolutely no rights whatsoever. According to Pascal Gobre, he writes, pagan authors describe children as being more like plants than human beings. And this had concrete consequences. Children were rudely brought up and very strongly beaten. Uh, that was a normal part of their education. In Rome, a child's father had the right to kill him for whatever reason until he came of age. And one notorious practice Christianity rebelled against was the abandoning of unwanted infants. They would pick up kids, bring them home, and nurture them. Another was the sexual exploitation of children. They would rescue kids from that. And this is the world of Christianity came into condemning abortion and infanticide as loudly and as early as it could. It made the church stand out. Christianity's description of children, that children are treasured human beings, was really an outgrowth of its revolutionary idea that radical equality in the infinite value of every single human being, no matter what age. If the God who made heaven and earth chose to reveal himself not as an emperor, but as a slave punished on the cross, 
then no one could claim higher dignity than anyone else on the basis of earthly status. So children obey parents, but parents do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Again, this, this is not a good example in the next cartoon. Um, so, I'm sorry, Simone, but grounding you isn't enough punishment. I'm afraid you'll have to be seen in public with us. You know, that is a way to embitter your kids sometimes, you know. The word embitter means to exasperate them. Don't exasperate. Don't, it means don't expect too much as a perfectionistic parent, but don't expect too little as a permissive parents and be neglectful. Both will lead to rebellion and, and discouragement. And this discouragement means being sullen and sulky and isolated and broken in spirit. Uh, a kid say, will conclude, I don't measure up in my parents' opinion, therefore I'm worthless. So parents have a responsibility to encourage their children. And if they don't receive encouragement at home, then they will seek it elsewhere. Encouragement maintains healthy boundaries and appropriate discipline when, uh, when kids are disciplined. What's the difference, though, between punishment and discipline? And this is the last little nugget I have for you, and I'll conclude. Punishment is looking back to the kids' past mistakes and becoming angry. It's past-oriented. Discipline is looking to the future, saying, man, I picture a special future for you. And, and there will be consequences for your actions, but because I want to see you succeed. So it's just a matter of the attitude, whether it's punishment or whether it's discipline. Uh, so Paul's instructions were good news for all three groups. And next week we'll look at servants and masters, which is kind of like employers and employees today. Because slavery wasn't anything like what we think of from you know, the 1800s in America. It was different, and so we'll explain that next week. But these three groups elevated those who were oppressed, elevated the women, elevated the children who had zero value, and elevated those who were servants or slaves. That's what Christ came to do. But God had expectations, not just for the wives, but especially for the husbands, not just for the children, but especially for the parents, and not just for the servants, but especially for the masters. And so that's why we're egalitarian. There it is. Hey, let's pray, and then we're going to go to the Lord who came to serve us, and he proved his servant heart by going to the cross for us. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, as we now come uh, to your table, and as we get ready to partake, uh, not only of your gift to us, but your very presence to us, um, you come to us at the table. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we do some soul searching now, and we ask you to make us more and more like yourself. So thank you, Lord, for being here today.